Amen. Good morning uh, to you. Welcome to Central. It's always a thrill for me to uh, see that our reach is truly from Holland and beyond. And we really are working at Central to be both stronger here and away. And it's just great to partner with Pastor Panna there in Cambodia. And that was Micah's privilege just last weekend to do that. Today we've got some challenges that we want to present to you, but at the same time, we, we want to present to you a, what we believe to be an exciting and a compelling vision. It's common if you have ever spent any kind of length in time in church for you to hear a pastor say, hey, we are a kingdom-driven church. We're a kingdom-minded church. And, and I've heard that so many times, and I'm mindful that I can say that, and um, you kind of look around here, right? What is it, 3,000 seats in this place? And, and you kind of say, yeah, what does your kingdom look like, right? <laughs> what, yeah, okay, you, you're kingdom-minded, you're kingdom-driven, but hey, does your kingdom kind of begin and end with central? I mean, over the last, what, year, uh, we've contributed, I think, uh, what is it, over 1.5, 1.6 million in the last six months to our Stronger Home and Away initiative. Well, we're actually going to make, what is what, 250,000 square feet, 300,000 square feet? And you can look at that and you can think, do you really need more space? Is that what your kingdom is about? And so I, I'm always mindful that whenever I say things like, hey, we're kingdom-minded, we're kingdom-driven, I'm mindful that I'm giving a, a kind of a, a statement here that is feeding into a perception that people have and questions that people ask about the kingdom of central. Just this week, someone sent an email and, and said, or, you know, what kind of empire are you building? They didn't know what the topic was today. And so whenever we say things like, what, what kind of kingdom driven? Typically, people will ask a couple of questions. They'll ask things like, how does your church's understanding of the kingdom influence the way you do ministry then? Or they'll ask something like, well, how does your understanding of kingdom influence the way that this church understands and practices mission? Today, we're going to answer those two questions. And I pray that what people will take away from this is that we truly are at Central and strive to be kingdom-driven in all we say and in all we do with that intentional about it. The journey to what we share with you today in unpacking our missions strategy for Central, both here in Holland and across all of our campuses, what we share today in commissioning our Grand Rapids team, our launch team, is based on a journey that we have been undertaking intentionally over the last 18 months. When God kind of revealed to us the strategy that he wanted us to follow, the kind of how we do what we're called to do, we intentionally developed series on the Sundays that created a culture and sowed seeds from the scriptures that will hopefully have laid the foundation for everything that we share today. All of that started in October of 2015 when Pastor Brad and I 
led a series called Kingdom and Empires. Any of you remember that series? It was actually the first series that we started when we had this screen. And in that series, we laid the foundation for our understanding of what it means to be a kingdom-minded church. We defined kingdom as this, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God experienced on earth just as it is in heaven. And when that happens, it brings healing and wholeness. And from that time, we've intentionally put in series that have just fleshed out how we see the kingdom experience being lived out in a church that really believe that when Jesus entered the world, something changed. You'll remember that when Jesus was about to begin his ministry, he entered into a synagogue in Nazareth. A scroll was handed to him, the scroll from the book of Isaiah. And in Luke chapter 4, we read that he unrolled that scroll and he found the place where something was written. And he started to read from that point. This is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Stop there. He has anointed me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. To be anointed is actually to be the Messiah, the anointed one. That's what the Messiah means. Or the Christ is the Greek version of that. The Spirit of the Lord anointed the Son of God in his life as a man. Why did God need the anointing of the Spirit? The Son of God needed the anointing of the Spirit in his life as a man because God did not take on flesh in order to act like God, but in order to act like the sons and daughters of God should have acted, but because of the controlling power of sin and the dominance of evil could not. And so he stands up and he says, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. When did the Spirit anoint Jesus? Just the previous chapter, as he's baptized, and all four Gospels say that the Spirit came down and rested on him. That's the anointing. And that anointing is for the task. His task is the Christ. You see, up until that moment, Jesus had been the Christ elect. But in this moment, when the Spirit anoints him, he now becomes officially the Christ and begins his ministry as the Christ of God. And everything the Son of God did in his life as a man was the result of the anointing that rested on him. Folks, what is true for Christ is true for Christians, the followers of Christ. So he stands up on this day because the anointing had fallen on him, rested on him, and he says those words, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He takes what was written by Isaiah and he says, Isaiah is writing about me. He's anointed me, why? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He says, look, this is good news. 
It's good news for those who are sick. It is good news for those who are oppressed. It is good news for those who are imprisoned. God is on me, and this is good news. Notice that Jesus stops at that point. This is hugely significant for anyone who claims to be a kingdom-driven follower of Jesus. This is hugely significant for any church that claims to be a kingdom-minded church. Jesus stops where the text of Isaiah does not stop. Remember now, he was given a scroll, he unrolled it, he found a place where this was written, and he read a portion, and he stopped at a certain point. Now, I want to put up for you here Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which is where Jesus read from, and I want you to notice the difference. This is the text that Jesus would have read from. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives and the release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, it says something else. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? Anybody familiar with Isaiah will know that vengeance, the idea of vengeance, is a popular theme in Isaiah. One example, Isaiah 35, verse 4, your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Commentators are pretty clear why Isaiah writes it the way that he does. One commentator by the name of Watts says this, to correct the situation of abuse and unjust use of force, both the freedom for the victims and the punishment of the guilty is needed. And so it is in the text. See, to, to correct an injustice, something needs to be done for those who are being unjustly treated. But at the same time, there needs to be a punishment on those who are perpetrating it. But when Jesus stands up, he simply declares the year of the Lord's favor. Why? What does this have to do with how we live and what we live for? This is hugely significant. If I were to ask you to quote John 3.16, probably pretty much every one of us could do it, right? For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But verse 17 then tells us this. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In case we're not sure what that truly means, Jesus tells us again in John chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now we've just read, right, that judgment, vengeance, is really important if you're going to deal with an injustice. We've read that favor and vengeance go together, but we see here that Jesus doesn't come to bring this act of judgment. 
But he does say it's coming, doesn't he? Look at what's written next. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The words that I have spoken will condemn them when? On the last day. There's something hugely significant going on here. It's significant because what we see in the coming of Jesus and in the continuing ministry of Jesus through the church is that there's a delay in judgment on the perpetrators of injustice in the earthly realm because judgment has been enacted on the real perpetrator of injustice in the heavenly realm. See, the reason the church exists in the world is because there has been a decision by God to delay judgment until the time when Christ will return. And this has a huge significance on why the church exists. Firstly, it tells us that church exists because the Christ follower is motivated to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the world. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 and 25 talk about the period of judgment, ushered in when Christ will return. Until that point, there's a delay. Why is there a delay? Because kingdom-minded believers and kingdom-minded people realize the reason for the delay is to give people an opportunity to voluntarily bow the knee to Jesus in this life rather than having to do it involuntarily in the next. So Philippians chapter 2. Christ, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. Took on flesh, became a servant, became obedient even unto death. But God has exalted him. He has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, you know the rest of it? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will one day bow because the day of judgment, the day of vengeance will come. And the church exists in this world to offer people an opportunity to voluntarily bow the knee to this Christ in this life rather than have to bow the knee involuntarily to him in the next. That's why we're here. The benefit of having such a large place to seat people is we've got more people to send. That's it. That's why we need more space. The more people you seat, the more people you send. But make no mistake about it. If a church is more interested in seating capacity and the glory and the size of its space, it will one day come down. The anointing on that church will go to another one. The attitude of Jesus to a building like that is the same attitude that Jesus has to the temple itself in Matthew 24. 
The disciples said, wow, look at this place, Jesus, speaking of the temple. Isn't this place awesome? To which Jesus said, the anointing is moving on from this place. This place will come down. The reason for the church is not so that we can come and sit here every Sunday. It's that we can come and be inspired here every week to go and live like Jesus out there because people need the gospel. People need Jesus. And so many people choose a church on what fits them, what suits them, if there are people like them, when in reality, Christians need to choose a church on the basis of whether that church encourages them to be more like Jesus. And being more like Jesus means you gather in a place and you say, God, anoint me with your Holy Spirit so that I can be Jesus to the people that I meet, that I can bring the truth of the gospel that sets people free from the real enemy of our souls, and that is evil itself. And so the second reason that the church is in this world is simply because God has given us that responsibility as we share the good news with another person. God has given us the opportunity to offer that person an experience of God's rule and God's reign on their life, a rule and a reign that restores God to his rightful place. That was the point of this message that Brad gave on October the 11th, I believe it was, 2015. It just shows how the, the rule and reign of God and the kingdom of God was about restoring all things. And the opposite to evil is not good. The opposite to evil is shalom. Shalom is not simply peace, the absence of conflict. It is wholeness and healing. The reason that we exist is not simply to offer people a ticket to the heavenly amusement park when they die. That's what would happen if we stop at point one. But as I always say, it's about meat on the plate while they wait. It's about a tangible experience of God in this life that heals, that restores, that delivers, that changes. So whenever we say, hey, we're a kingdom-minded church, this is what we're talking about. We realize we do not exist for ourselves, we exist for God's glory and to continue Christ's ministry through the same spirit who empowered Christ empowering us. That's why we're here. And we're thankful that we have a place that can seat so many people because we want to reach a lot of people in order to send a lot of people to reach even more people because we know the day is coming when everyone will bow the knee to Jesus. This is no fable to us, this is real. And we want to give as many people as we can an opportunity to bow the knee voluntarily to Jesus in this world. And so, any church that realizes this is why the church exists on earth must develop strategies for its ministry. And so we've been working on that. And what we realize is that strategies will be different from church to church. How one church goes about establishing the rule and reign of God on earth is going to be different 
to another one. Each church is called to do what God is telling them to do. Jesus said, I only do that which my Father tells me to do. I only say that which my Father tells me to say. Every church has got that responsibility. And so this expression of kingdom-minded ministry, raw-defeating ministry, evil-defeating ministry, will look different from church to church. But in reality, it's going to be comprehensive in scope. It can't just be about offering someone a ticket to heaven when they die. There's got to be more to it than that. It has to change their life now. It has to be comprehensive in scope. God has led us to embrace a, a multi-site strategy. But it's not a typical multi-site strategy that a lot of churches are using. In a lot of churches, what will essentially happen is the worship will be the same. And then there will come a point in time in the message where my face or whoever's speaking in this place would actually be put on a screen and a lot of people would watch my face in a different place. The wonders of technology, right? But that's not what God is calling us to do. See, God is calling us not to pursue a ministry based around a common communicator, but a ministry based on a common commitment to the mission of God in the world. That's what unites us. And so, our kingdom-minded strategy that Mike is going to talk to you about in a few moments, that we'll see us sending Pastor Torrin and Jordan and a whole army of people out of this place, is going to be based on a strategy that is constant across all of the campuses that will work consistently and constantly, even though the personalities will change. Our multi-site strategy is very different. It's not personality-centered. The only person that we want to be at the center of what we do is Jesus and his call. Nothing more, nothing less. Why do we do it this way? We do it this way because we believe that all mission is local. We believe that all mission is local. We can't have ministry from a distance. We have ministry up close and personal. And so what we're doing is we are basically working to both equip and support localized expressions of kingdom-minded ministry, shalom-bringing, raw-defeating ministry. We're working to support. Folks, the day is coming when American missions organizations, North American missions organizations, will realize the world is closing to Western missionaries. The day is coming when they will wake up and realize we have to empower the southern hemisphere who get into more places than we do. The day is coming when we will realize that the biggest missional force that we have in our churches and not the one or two professional missionaries that we can afford to send, but the two or three hundred business people who can go and be Christ in places where I will never be able to go. So we need to transition to equipping and supporting. God has blessed the American church to be a blessing to the world. And we need to embrace equipping all people, just like Ephesians 4 says, for the work of ministry 
in the world. See, our ministry is going to be highly decentralized, not controlled, highly decentralized, but it's also going to be highly synchronized around a common belief of why we're here. All mission is local, and we have to be there to truly do it. Secondly, all of our ministry, missions ministry, is basically going to be consistent. You see, our multi-site ministry is essentially a network of missionally motivated, kingdom-driven churches. In this first phase of embracing that multi-site reality, you've heard about central Cambodia. You hear about central Jakarta. You hear about central La Roca. And then all of a sudden, Taran and Jordan start talking about local church Grand Rapids. What's that about, right? Central, what, local church Grand Rapids? No, local church Grand Rapids. Our vision is around being a network that supports localized, decentralized, but highly synchronized ministry. You won't see central on the website of local church Grand Rapids. You won't see it. But you will see a common mission strategy. You will see that little phrase, local church Grand Rapids is part of the Water's Edge Network, a network of missionally generous, kingdom-driven churches. See, folks, I really believe that the day is coming in a post-Christian, and dare I even say pre-Christian America, you understand what I'm saying here, right? You go so far post-Christian that you get pre-Christian. The day is coming in post-Christian, pre-Christian America where the most fruitful churches will not be two and three thousand, they will be two and three hundred, where people are known where people can connect, where people can relate. And I've spent most of my ministry career, for want of a better word, in that size of church. Where on a Monday, I would be the graphic designer, designing all the graphics. Can you believe how bad they were if I designed them? (laughs) And then on Tuesday, I was the assistant, and I would basically be making the program. On Wednesday, I would probably be doing a funeral, cleaning up after it. On Thursday, I would be the pastor on call, and I would do all of this stuff, and then I was supposed to find my time to actually prepare the message. Oh, I had the slides to do, the keynote to do, and everything else to organize. Most of my time in a church like that was actually spent organizing the ministry, not doing ministry. Our multi-site network is going to be about synchronizing all of that administrative task so that the pastors can focus on doing the work of ministry that leads people to Jesus. That's what we're about. Because that's what ministry is supposed to be about. And so we are going to pursue and to promote a multi-site church as a house of brands, not as a branded house. Great news for those of you who love the name Central Wesleyan, we don't have to change our name. Sorry for those of you who don't like it, we don't have to change our name. It's funny, even within the Wesleyan context, when I go to a church meeting of some kind, all too often I have to introduce our church as Holland Central, not Central Wesleyan, because there are so many that people don't know which one it is. Now, we're the largest Central Wesleyan, but that doesn't make any difference. 
So folks, just get used to this moving forward. Understand what our heart is behind our multi-site. It is about gathering people in in order to send people out. And we want to reach more to send more. And as we send more, we're not going to have our name all over everything, but we're going to work to equip and to support other people doing ministry. That's the blessing that God has given to us. Lastly here, why are we doing this? Because we believe that all mission is personal. If it is true, and I believe this with all of my heart, that the reason that Jesus has left us and the reason that Jesus has left you and me personally in this world and delayed judgment is to give us an opportunity to share Jesus with other people, then this affects you and me. Not just us, it affects you and me. And the beauty in what Micah is about to share, the, the, the strategy behind what we do and how we do ministry is that it can be personalized as well as organized. God, God has given us an incredible opportunity as a church to take Jesus to the nations. And he's given us a way of doing this where we can break down this kingdom rule of God into, into just slaying five giants. And as Micah comes now, I want you to engage with this model of ministry and I want you not only to, to hear what it is that we're going to be doing through our campuses, but also what it is that God is calling us to do through our own lives. I honestly believe that God saves one person, not just for that person. He saves an individual in order to reach a family and a household. He saves a household in order to reach a neighborhood. He saves a neighborhood in order to reach a county. He saves a county in order to reach a state. He saves a state in order to reach a country. He saves a country in order to reach the world. We've been saved in order to be sent. And what Micah is going to share with you is just a very simple strategy that we're going to employ that will see evil defeated one life at a time one experience at a time, one way at a time. So welcome, Micah, as he just counts. Thank you, Pastor Craig. Good morning, everyone. So the last couple Water's Edge Sundays, we have been talking about these five global giants that God is calling us to slay. And I want to put them on the screen for you to refresh your memory. The giant of spiritual emptiness, the giant of self-serving leadership, disease, multifaceted illiteracy, and poverty and injustice. And we've also seen how in many places around the world, all five giants can be working together at play in a person's life, oppressing, crushing God's people, leaving them without hope. And as we talk about how God is calling us to invest strategically in missions, home and away, we're gonna reveal what we sense are the antidotes, what we sense are the weapons that God is giving us to slay each giant. Uh, but before I do that, before we reveal what that is, uh, I want to tell a handful of stories. I'm going to tell you four stories from very, uh, four very different parts of the world. And as I tell these stories, I want you to identify the giants that are present 
in the lives of these stories that I'm going to tell. The first story is, uh, his name's Francis. He's actually a friend of uh, Pastor Kelly's. Uh, Francis is from Uganda. And when Francis was six years old, rebels from the Lord's Resistance Army, led by Joseph Kony, kidnapped him. Along with 23 other kids between the ages of six and 13. He was captive for seven years. And he saw many of these kids executed in front of him. And it was so horrible that one day he decided to escape, but he was caught. And when he came back, he was punished. They took a machete and they hacked off his hand. He'd been shot several times sometimes at very close ranges, and he suffers from a blindness in one of his eyes due to the gunpowder that poisoned his eye. He accepted Christ later in life, but he still suffers much of what he experienced. I can't imagine having gone through something like that. You see the giants. You see spiritual emptiness. You see self-serving leadership of the rebels and Joseph Coney. You see disease. These kids should be in school. They shouldn't be child soldiers, right? And you see poverty and injustice. This next story I'm going to tell is a young man from Southeast Asia. He was born into a pretty well-to-do family. His father was a one-star general in the uh, uh, government, and his job, because of his job, he had a lot of money. And because he had a lot of money, he had a lot of women, was unfaithful to his wife, and in the process contracted HIV and died when this uh, young man was only 15. They lost their home to loan sharks immediately, couldn't afford barely anything, and moved into a place that was profoundly inadequate for a widow and six children. So mom remarries and has a daughter. Unfortunately, that little girl died at the age of five from HIV. She contracted it during birth. Two years later, the mother dies. This young man has become a double orphan and responsible for his siblings. So he does what he can to care for him. I mean, he's he's collecting cans and plastics and trying to, to sell them. Well, his story started to change when a missionary led him to the Lord. You see, he's from... He's in a Buddhist nation. He's from a Buddhist family, and this individual led him to the Lord, and after he led him to the Lord, this young man started to get involved in church, and as he got involved in church, he started to realize, maybe God made me for ministry, and so he enrolled in Bible college, and after he graduated from Bible college, he got a good job with a local non-government organization, and he was starting to, to be paid a fair wage, and he ended up putting three of his siblings all the way through college and the rest of his siblings all the way through high school. 
In 2001, this young man got a vision, got a calling to be a church planner. And so he decided that he would plant a church in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, where he is currently turning drug addicts into disciplers. And last week, baptized 12 former Buddhist young people in the faith. This young man is Pastor Pananuth. My man. This next story is of a young man who is a part of the Poetis International family in Zambia. His name is Sunday. And uh, I had the chance to interview Sunday, and he articulates his testimony in such a powerful way. And so I'm just going to go ahead and read you his story, and I want you to identify the giants in his life. The beating started when I was four years old. I've always been quiet and prefer keeping to myself. My parents hated me, but I could never figure out why. I was forced to do daily tasks that were impossible to complete according to my parents' expectations. Even when I did, they found something wrong and would beat me. Every day I had to fetch water one kilometer away with two 20-liter containers. They only gave me five minutes to be back home. I would try to get my friends to help me because I was living in so much pain from the abuse. I washed the clothes, cleaned the house and dishes all day. The only break I had was when I slept. I was a slave at home. I was introduced to another life where I would be free from the abuse, a life where I can do whatever I want and go wherever. So when I was 10 years old, I became a street kid. For six years, I slept under the road in a water tunnel. I would take plastics and sew them together as clothing to keep me dry during the rainy season. I wanted to stay in school, but the plastics that I would sell to local vendors would hardly get me money for one meal a day. I dropped out of school when I was in grade seven. I started to steal, drink, and smoke. I was so alone. But one day it all changed. I walked into a church and asked one of the pastors to pray for me. And when he did, I realized for the first time that God is real, that Jesus has forgiven me. You see, because of the pain my family caused me and the loneliness and the hardships of being a street kid, I denied that God even existed. But when he came into my life, the denial, the anger, the pain, the loneliness disappeared. I was invited to live with a church member, and they gave me shelter and food while I finished school. Now I want to love others. I can forgive. I want to serve. My dream is to help orphans and vulnerable children, which many are street kids just like I used to be. I want to serve children who are abused and in pain. In order to do that, I need to finish school and then get a job. Going back to school is very important to me in seeing my dream come true. But I know one thing. God is the owner of my dream, so I know that he will make it come true no matter what. And we are helping Sunday's dream come true. But you see the giants <laughs> that threatened to just leave him hopeless. Spiritual emptiness, self-serving leadership. This, this boy went through some serious addictions when he was on the street. And you see poverty you see the problem, the, the hardship of not being able to stay in school. 
The last story I'm going to tell um, may shock you. And we don't have a picture of her. Uh, we wanted to protect her identity, and we're just going to call her Jessie this morning. When Jessie was 13, she was at a party one night, and um, she was raped by an older boy at the party that she attended, uh, a boy from her school. And so the next day when she went to school, she wanted to feel safe, so she decided to carry a knife with her. She was caught with the knife, and uh, she served time in detention and eventually was expelled from the school. Jessie's mom is a drug addict who lives in a broken-down camper. Her father is not in the picture. Due to mom's addiction and extreme poverty, Jessie just ran away, didn't go back to school, and no one followed up with her. She's been living on her own since she was 15 years old, going from friend's house to friend's house, drug house to drug house. When she was 15, she became pregnant. At 16, she had a son. And shortly after she gave birth, she realized the community didn't have the resources to take care of a 16-year-old single mom. And so she relied on the network that she once had, going from friend to friend, drug house to drug house. She would even trade her body for a fix or a place to sleep. She lost her baby in the process. CPS took her son away. She's now 17, lives with her boyfriend, who controls every aspect of her life. Where and when she can go places, when and how much she can eat, and who she talks to. And what might surprise you is that Jesse's from and lives in Holland, Michigan. And if it weren't for incredible partners like Barnabas Ministries, who knows where Jesse would be today. Because of Barnabas, she's in a young mom's group, she attends girls' group, and has a couple of advocates working with her every week. And due to her lifestyle, she suffers from health concerns as well. I mean, her story is in process. Where would she be without the intervention of Barnabas? You can see the giants alive in her life. You can see spiritual emptiness. You can see self-serving leadership. Who would exploit a young lady in a situation like that for a few moments of gratification? It just burns my heart. These stories are heartbreaking, and though they're from very different parts of the world, you see the commonalities. You see giants, all five, alive in their lives. And so how as a church are we to respond to this in a way that fully transforms their lives in the communities where they live? Well, he's given us a comprehensive, giant slang strategy that we call AMPT. AMPT is an acronym, and each letter uh, is, an, is an antidote. It's a weapon 
uh, that corresponds to a giant that we want to slay. There is one non-negotiable giant, spiritual emptiness. Uh, We believe that this is a non-negotiable because we are Christ followers, because we are a church. And you may remember, uh, I used poverty as an illustration to say that the root of poverty is spiritual, and let's see if any of you can remember this, but the nature of poverty is relational. It's about relationships that don't work. And so we see this picture of shalom, the relationships that God created in the beginning. And then sin enters, and we see what happened to those relationships. God's mission, God's heart, is to reconcile these relationships. And we are convicted that the entity that God has established to facilitate, to promote, to see the reconciliation of these relationships is the local church by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we are going to accelerate a multiplying movement of churches. I remember being in Bangladesh last March and uh, visited some very, very impoverished communities and with so many needs. And uh, God just impressed it on my heart, and he says, you know what, Micah, the needs are great, but if you want to do anything that is going to outlive you, you have to equip and empower my local church. And so we are passionate about working in and through the local church to see reconciliation. That's why we're passionate about campusing. The proclamation of the gospel is absolutely essential, but we can't stop at proclamation. We don't want to save a soul and leave someone hungry. Alternatively, we don't want to feed someone only to send them to hell. I'm going to unpack that idea a little bit later, but I want to move on to the second antidote, mobilize. We want central home in a way to mobilize servant leaders. Um, Godly, Christ-centered leadership can sometimes be hard to find in the the West and the East, Um, especially in impoverished places. It's hard to find godly leadership. In fact, I've got a couple African friends that say, godly leadership is the answer to all of Africa's problems, like all of them. Like poverty and corruption and injustice and HIV. And I would go on to say, it's probably the answer to all the world's problems. They say, you've got to disciple people to embody godly values. In fact, my Zambian friend Musa says, development without discipleship makes things worse. Think about that. People are in power. People have access to resources, leaders, and what they decide to do with that power, that influence, those resources can affect so many people. You think about Joseph Coney and the Lord's Resistance Army. In first service, I said that 30,000 kids had been kidnapped to become child soldiers. Kelly corrected me. It was 60,000 kids, and he had 88 wives. 
Look how his abuse of his position affected other people. Think about Sunday and his parents. Think about Jesse. At the same time, we also want to mobilize servant leaders here. I don't know about you, but sometimes I suffer from an unfortunate ideology that everything I have is for me. Everything I have is mine. I've worked hard. I've earned it, so let me enjoy it. When in actuality, everything that we have is the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and everything that it contains. And so we need to have a proper theology of wealth and our talents and our time. We can't take any of this with us, so we may as well spend it on expanding the kingdom of God here on earth. This is probably the greatest task that we have at Central. We talk about it in, in, in our, with my missions team all the time. Our goal is to get every person at Central on mission. That's a daunting task, but we're committed to it. Next thing we want to do is provide healing for the sick. I would also say we want to pro provide healing for the afflicted. Uh, I want to be careful how we define this word because uh, disease can come in many different forms. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but we are all diseased. We are all slowly dying. I don't know if you knew that or not. We're suffering from going to die soon, someday. And so it comes in many different forms. It could be in the form of, you know, HIV and malaria in Southern Africa, Southeast Asia. But it can also come in the form of mental illness and addiction. Whatever the affliction, we want to be healers of the whole person. It's one of the reasons that we love celebrate recovery. I mean, this ministry, people are finding freedom from addiction and complete healing. I'm also passionate about preventing that heartache. You know, I've been in uh, development work and missions for a long time, and one of the biggest issues that we've dealt with is the devastation caused by HIV. Think about how HIV influenced Hannah's story. How would his life be different if that would have been prevented in his father's life? Think about the orphan crisis that is the reality in the world. Eight out of 10 children who are orphaned by HIV and AIDS are in sub-Saharan Africa. Eight out of 10. The devastation that something like HIV that can be preventable, that's preventable, has caused on a whole subcontinent. I believe with the right education, it can be avoided. With the right education, things like exploitation and trafficking can be avoided. And so we are passionate about educating the next generation. Now I've got a series of quotes that I'd like to share because these, uh, these, these guys say it much better than I could in explaining the power of education. Horace Mann was an American politician, 
an educational reformer in the 17th century. He's also known as the father of the common or public school movement. We're thankful for that. He said, education then, beyond all other devices of human origin, is the great equalizer of the conditions of men, the balance wheel of the social machinery. Victor Hugo, a French poet, around the same time, echoed those sentiments by saying, he who opens a school door closes a prison. Abraham Lincoln said, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. But one of my favorite quotes is by the anti-apartheid revolutionary Nelson Mandela who said, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. These men intrinsically knew that the youth of society would eventually lead society. And one of the most powerful things that we have is education to provide opportunities for kids to thrive, for kids to learn, for kids to work, for kids to lead. Kids Hope has drastically enhanced the educational experience at Jefferson School, not just for the kids, but teachers are coming to our mentors asking for prayer. And who says prayer is not school? It's amazing. We believe in the power of education. How would these stories be different? You see, Francis and Sunday on the ends who struggled with getting a proper education. You see Pastor Pana in the middle, who against all odds was able to put himself through school. Look at the difference in their stories. Education is powerful. Now the last one that I wanna cover is that God is calling uh, our church and our campuses to defend the poor and vulnerable to address the giant of justice. Now, I could talk about this literally all day long, and many of you are going, please don't, your time is running out. But this is something that is, it's just, it's just near and dear to my heart, it's close to my experience, and it's a huge, huge issue. Uh, a little bit earlier, I mentioned we don't wanna save a soul and leave a person hungry. We don't wanna feed a person and send them to hell. I want to illustrate this with uh, one of my friends. Um, he's a Zambian pastor. His name is Pastor Fred. And uh, God put it on Pastor Fred's heart to begin ministering to uh, prostitutes and victims of exploitation, which are a huge problem in Livingston, Zambia. It's a border town where um, Poetis International works. And um, so he started, you know, going to brothels and striking up conversations with these ladies, and then God impressed it on his heart. Uh, Pastor Fred, I actually want you to plant a church in one of these bars and brothels. And so he started asking the bar owners, can I have your bar to plant a church in it? None of them said yes. Until one day, he led a bar brothel owner to the Lord. And he said, God wants me to plant a church in a bar and brothel. And the owner said, here's the keys. Do whatever you want with it. So Pastor Fred's church is in a former bar brothel. 
And so they begin to reach out to these women and start to lead many of them to the Lord. And they'd be around for a little while, and then a few weeks later, he would realize they're not there anymore, and so he would track them down, and he would say, hey, what's going on? You, you are a Christian now. And she goes, yeah, but, I mean, what do we do now? I mean, what's next? The only thing that I have that can generate income is my body, and I have to eat. And so we cannot just save a soul without answering the question, what's next? Because of the lack of education, because of the lack of skills, because of the lack of opportunities and the injustices that are driven by poverty, we have to defend these individuals. And the way we're going to do that is by protecting the Francis's and the Sundays in the world from physical violence. We're going to rescue victims of exploitation from sexual violence. And we will equip the poor with the skills necessary to thrive. I love what the Lausanne movement says about creating jobs, about work. So what the poor want is not aid, but jobs. Real jobs, not subsidized ones. This is the dignity and self-reliance they deserve. We need to empower the poor with skills to create an alternative life to what they've known. Amen? It's one of the reasons that we are tackling housing. Affordable housing is a huge problem. And even with those who have jobs like Alice Families, asset-limited, income-constrained, employed families, they might have three jobs. They work and work and work and fall further behind because we don't, we have such a lack of affordable housing. And because of the lack of affordable housing, we have not been able to receive uh, refugee families uh, from Bethany Christian Services. Now, on top of the lack of affordable housing, apparently our public transportation is inadequate. It's not accessible enough to refugee families. These are obstacles that are holding us back. And we're trying to create creative solutions, to come up with creative solutions to overcome these obstacles. And we will strive until it happens. Why? Because God has called Central to defend the poor and the vulnerable. This is AMPT. It's a mission strategy that we will apply home in a way that will holistically transform the lives of the lost and the least in order for us to amplify the hope and life of Jesus Christ to all. And now we have an opportunity to help our own. We have an opportunity to give in order to meet local needs here in our body. And so the ushers are going to come, and I want you to um, maybe identify with some people. Maybe some people you know can identify with some of the stories that I told, and they need our love and support. And so I just uh, pray that you would give with a generous heart. Ushers, would you come and uh, help us take our benevolence offering? Thank you. 
Essential, we exist to amplify the hope and life that Jesus offers all people. People say, how do you do that? Well, we're amped up. We accelerate, we mobilize, we provide, we educate, and we defend. And the primary expression of that is a kingdom-minded people who recognize that they gather together to be inspired to go. And we organize around that by intentionally reproducing churches. That's what our campusing system is. So in this moment, I want to ask uh, Taryn uh, to come forward and, and members of the Grand Rapids uh, just launch team. If, if you just gather with me at the frontier. And what we're going to do is we're going to commission them today. They launch on Easter Sunday. They've had numerous meetings. And what we want to do is we want to pray for them. And I pray the space they leave, we would recognize it's our responsibility to fill. Why? Because we want more people here? No, because we need more people out there. That's why. And so we're just going to pray for them. And, and it's a thrill for me to see what Torn and I began talking about just about two years ago, uh, coming, to, coming to birth. And if you're here and you're investing in Stronger and you see the playland going up and you're thinking, when's it going to happen? Just realize you're investing in all of this too. All of this is possible because when God spoke, you gave. So Tom, we wanna pray for you. Jordan, we wanna pray for you. We'll miss you guys, but we love you guys and we're thankful for the fellowship that we share. And we're just gonna commission them. As we do that, if you're around them here, you may wanna come and just lay your hands on them on the stage too. Just come and lay your hands on Jordan and Taryn. And if you're too far away and you can't do that, just extend your hands to them if you would. There's nothing magical or mystical about that. It's simply a sign of identification. And we just wanna send them. And we send them because we are amped up to do the work that Jesus left us here to do. We're going to proclaim the good news, not just to offer someone uh, a kind of ticket to heaven when they die, but actually to experience the rule and the reign of Jesus while they wait. That's what we're about. We want those who are sick to find healing. We want those who are, who are basically experiencing need to find their relief through God and through his people. So won't you join me? Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the wonderful gift that we have received, the gift of Jesus. A gift that is so precious that we give him to the world. And I thank you for the people that stand before us today, a people who have been motivated to go and take the good news of Jesus to people who've not heard him, who do not know him, who may have walked away from him and need to come back to him. Father, we thank you that the very same spirit that empowered the life of your son in his life as a man empowers these same men and women of God. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would breathe on them, that you would fill them, that you would anoint them. And as they leave this place, they leave under the anointing of your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come, anoint, and fulfill the task that you have for your church through them in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. And as they just lead us out of here, just be encouraged to continue praying for them, and we'll see you all next week. God bless.